and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life. Still a bit chilly in the shed, but it's nice and bright and sunny outside, so it's giving me a good feeling. Um, a few news kind of uh, spots, I suppose, this week. A few things that I've seen uh, online. And funnily enough, as uh, regular listeners know, I never think about themes, but all of these uh, news articles that I've seen, these little points, seem to kind of come together. So um, maybe there is a theme to this particular episode. And I think it might be about accessibility and the family. But let's see how it goes, shall we? The first thing I saw was uh, on a BBC uh, online article, and it was about the return of cheap digital compact cameras. Uh, The article said this... In the past 12 months, videos with the hashtag digital camera have amassed more than 220 million views on TikTok. Analysts described the trend as being linked to similar revivals of -of turn-of-the-century fashion. Scott Ewart, 32, who lives on the Isle of Arran, has clocked up more than 5 million likes on his TikTok account using what is now considered retro kit. He said, a lot of folk find them quite comforting. It reminds me, uh, reminds them, I should say, of their childhood. It reminds them of simpler times. I think this makes sense. And funnily enough, it's something I've been saying to a lot of people for quite some time now. When people talk to me about buying a camera for a family friend or perhaps for a a student who wants a, a camera... I often say, go on eBay or somewhere similar, uh, maybe on Facebook Marketplace, and look for cheap compact cameras from around sort of 2010, 2011, around that kind of time. Because what you'll find is that really expensive cameras from that period, particularly compact cameras and the early mirrorless cameras are really cheap and they're a really good buy. So whereas analog cameras sort of completely dropped off a cliff with the emergence of digital and then suddenly went back up again as everybody decided that they wanted to have an analog camera, the same situation hasn't really happened as yet, but maybe it will now, for those kind of compact cameras. You can still pick them up cheaply in charity shops, £5, £10, £20, that kind of price. Just look for the good brands. But why this makes sense to me is that whereas analog didn't make sense to me in that we were looking backwards with the idea of learning skills that take time to master And of course, the additional cost of film and processing, we know all of that. Well, with a digital camera, this idea that going back to those cameras and as a step up, really, I suppose, from a smartphone and that smartphone's kind of been the gateway to photography. And then the cheap digital compact takes it that one stage further. So I have to say, I think this is a a really good thing. Whilst we're on the subject of accessibility, back in the COVID lockdown days, as we're all aware, a lot of stuff moved online, particularly talks and uh, exhibitions tried but didn't really succeed. But there were certainly a lot more opportunities to engage with photography online. And at the time, I was sort of calling out, really, I suppose, 
for those same kinds of places, the galleries and the talks, to keep going online when um, we return to some kind of a normal. And so it was really great to see the other day a tweet from friend of the podcast, Mark Wilson, here appeared on a very early uh, episode explaining what photography meant to him. Well, he uh, tweeted this. Um, Amazingly, we had 272 people online for the live stream exhibition opening talk at his exhibition uh, concerning uh, the wounded landscape, a a Holocaust-based body of work at the Side Gallery in Newcastle, as well as the sold-out in-person visitors. He said, thank you for all sparing your time. And he also says, now we need more opportunities like this. The exhibition continues at the site gallery and runs until April the 9th. But I completely agree with Mark. If there is any discussion being made uh, by people or a point being made by people who put on these kinds of events that if it's online, nobody will come. Mark there absolutely um, proving his point and my point, actually, that that isn't the case. And those 272 people who joined online would not have had an opportunity to engage with Mark, the work and the exhibition if it hadn't have been live streamed. So once again, to me, seems like a good idea, just as the idea of using those cheap cameras acts as a gateway into photography. The idea of putting things online and making them accessible also encourages that engagement. Whilst we're on the subject of accessibility, uh, getting audiences, getting people involved with photography that previously may not have uh, felt it was for them, particularly around the idea of exhibitions, I saw another tweet the other day. Yeah, I'm back on Twitter, Photo Life Pod. If you're not already following us, um, it's not as it was, but it's still useful in some ways. But anyway, I saw a tweet uh, the other day um, by the Bodleian Libraries. If you're not aware of the Bodleian, it's the official library for Oxford University. It's an incredible resource. photographically, uh, brilliantly led by Richard Ovenden, who has really encouraged the buying of archives and the putting on of photographic exhibitions uh, in the heart of Oxford at the Western Library as part of the Bodleian Libraries. Anyway, so here is the tweet that they put out. What kind of exhibitions would you like to see more of at the Bodleian in future? Well, 31% of people said great literature, 19% of people said socially thoughtful. 47% of people said historical. And this is the one that really made me sad. Only 3% of people said family friendly. And to me, that's an issue because we need exhibitions to be family friendly. We need them to be open. So just as Mark is putting that talk up online and encouraging people to engage, just as the cameras are in, cheap cameras are encouraging people to engage, so I believe should exhibitions by really important um, members of the establishment, really, like the Bodleian, they should make them family friendly. I really enjoy taking my 10-year-old to galleries and to photographic exhibitions. But quite often, she can get a little bit bored just walking around looking at the work. 
Why not make it more interactive? Because the reality is that the children of today are the photographers of tomorrow. This week, we welcome to the podcast to explain to us in under five minutes what photography means to him, Luke Stevenson, who was born on New Year's Day in 1983 in Darlington in the northeast of England. Life in Britain and the British psyche are at the core of Stevenson's work, which ranges from prize budgery guards to the World Beard and Moustache Championships. He graduated in 2005, and in the same year, he was awarded the Jerwood Photography Prize. And in 2006, he was selected as one of 10 photographers to showcase their work at the International Festival of Fashion and Photography in France. His work has been published in a variety of publications, including the New York Times magazine, The Guardian, Dazed and Confused, Foam, Art Review and Wallpaper. Stevenson has published four photo books to date. His first, Showbirds, published in 2012, and the second, published in 2014, a series exploring the wonderful world of the 99 ice cream. I'll have two flakes in mine. Anyway... In 2019, he published a book looking at the English rose from the esteemed grower David Austin. And his most recent book, British Record Fish, was published in 2021. What does photography mean to me is a a big question. Um, uh, And I've been thinking about it a lot since Grant asked me to be part of the podcast. I think... uh, Generally, I'm, I feel very privileged and lucky um, to be a photographer and to do this and to make my living from this job. I work for myself. I can kind of do what I want when I want in a certain degree. Um, and I'm kind of very privileged to be able to do that. Uh, and I kind of think about that a lot. Within my work, I like to... Um, find things that are slightly hidden from the mainstream i suppose if that that could be like a hobby um an organization i have photographed like showbirds ice creams uh flowers uh recently fish records i mean the thing that i've started to realize over the last couple of years is the thing that I find most rewarding about my work is the kind of process of, of kind of of coming up with the idea um, researching the idea finding out how or who I need to speak to to make it happen um, and then kind of coming up with a way of actually photographing or presenting what I'm wanting to say um, I'm not a particularly technical photographer so Generally, when I do things, it's it's a very DIY, trial and error type method. Um, I mean, for example, when I photographed ice creams, um, I photographed 99s and I travelled around the country photographing them in, the, in a wooden box on wheels because that was the only way I could think would work before the ice cream started melting and didn't look very nice. Um so yeah, it's that kind of do-it-yourself mentality, figuring it out, and th- that process of discovery of and 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 overcoming uh, the obstacles that these little ideas put in your way. And I think that's 
that's what I find most rewarding, um, sometimes more than the actual f- final photos, really. So to conclude, what does photography mean to me? Um, it, I feel very fortunate, I suppose, to be involved in photography and the world around it. Um, it's it's taken me to some nice places. I've made some good friends with photography. It allows me to be nosy and interested in the world and um, keeps a roof over my head, which is a big plus. It certainly is, Luke, and uh, I'm pleased I've got the roof above me in the shed at the moment. Uh, Thanks very much for that contribution. I think it's very interesting. I'm always interested in photographers who are quite so happy to actually say, you know, the technical side of photography is not part of what I'm about. And I don't have any fear. I don't have any need to try and play that technical experience up. Anyway, if you're not aware of Luke's work, check out his website, as always. Highly recommend it. There's a real sense of fun, but also a fantastic graphic uh, kind of quality to his work. Regular listeners will know that I occasionally dip my toe into the world of computational photography um, in writing and also on this podcast and the discussion that Jonas Bendixson and I had at Christmas was, I suppose, in a way, an idea to kind of bring that to you, but also to kind of get engaged with that conversation myself so that I start to understand what impact AI is truly going to have. And I've seen a few AI images recently, which are certainly going to raise discussion points in academic circles about what is a photograph, I'm sure. But I think it's also going to impact on all of us photographers. So I saw a a news article the other day that I want to share with you, which is about AI photography, but it also brings it really home to where it is and how it could impact on our lives. So it's called this, oh, it's titled this, Man or Machine? Is this Australia's most controversial photo? This winning photo in an Australian photography competition is literally unreal and seriously scary. I do like that Australian kind of tabloid approach to uh, the story. But anyway, let's go on. This winning photo in a recent Australian photography competition is well unreal. A Sydney-based artificial intelligence art studio, absolutely, AI works on the mission statement, who is the better artist, man or machine? Let's find out. On Wednesday evening, the studio won a photography competition. This week, the judges of a weekly-themed competition run by electronics retailer DigiDirect unknowingly awarded the studio's submission of a computer-generated image the top prize. Before you ask, the studio immediately fessed up and refused the cash prize. The image, created using artificial intelligence, depicted a sunrise, a breaking wave and two surfers and was entered under the name Jan van Eyck, the 15th century painter who created the most stolen artwork of all time, the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb. 
We did it to prove that we're at a turning point with artificially intelligent technology by passing the ultimate test. Could an AI-generated image not only slip by unnoticed, but actually be awarded the top prize by a photography expert? The answer is resoundingly yes, the studio said. They also said that machine is now the superior artist to man. The surfers in our image never existed. Neither does that particular beach or stretch of ocean. It's made up of an infinite amount of pixels taken from infinite photographs that have been uploaded online over the years by anyone and everyone. And what you're left with is an entirely convincing award winner, the guys at the studio said. Well, you might want to look that up online yourself. The image, I've got to tell you, looks like the worst kind of over-photoshopped, over-produced, HDR nightmare, like an Athena poster of the 1980s. Um, for me, very much, um, very obviously, a manipulated image. But of course, there's a big difference between a manipulated image and a created image from nothing. At least the manipulated image is based on a photograph initially. However far it then moves away from that original capture, it is at least based on some form of reality. What we're talking about with the AI and the computational is, of course, something that is fully created, a painting, an illustration. There's a discussion point here around whether or not it's a photographic image. Is it made by a camera or is it made on a screen? And I'm myself, I'm going backwards and forwards over all of this. What I do know is that the images I've seen so far that have been created with AI are incredibly generic in their kind of subject matter and their approach. There is nothing original about them as photographs. It's very clear that somebody is trying to recreate something that has existed previously. I saw something else recently um, using Bruce Davidson's um, work on the subway as the, uh, I suppose, the, the paint palette for these AI photographs that were being created. I haven't got any answers for you on this. I think it's really important that we all keep an eye out for it and that we remain aware of it. As always, we can't stick our head in the sand. We shouldn't get angry about it. We should be open to move. We should be able to evolve as the discussion, as the debate evolves. Photography is always evolving, and it is always evolving from a technological basis. That's the whole point of that thing we hold in our hand, which we use to create images with. I started off this particular episode talking about those cameras that 10 years ago were cutting edge, were six, £700 each, and which you can now buy for £20, £30 on eBay. I think that's proof of that technological development and advancement and evolution. As photographers, I think our roles are changing. What's really important, I should say, is that we are aware of that fact. And of course, as I say every week, that we take care. Mm -hmm.